Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Here at FuturePod, we are always thinking of ways to capture new perspectives and provide mind-stimulating content for our listeners. So, we have introduced an additional format to complement our traditional mix of interviews, which we are calling the FuturePod Conversations. Today, we have two of our previous guests returning for a conversation. Richard Hames, founder of the Centre for the Future, and Richard's based in Thailand, and Zia Sardar from the Centre for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies, and Zia is in the United Kingdom. Welcome back to FuturePod, Richard and Zia. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Richard initially posed this question. What's next for the field of foresight? How can we move on from the foundation methods and tools that seem to have us locked in their grip? How can we become more relevant and more practical? How can we approach design from different ontological frameworks? Okay, Richard, perhaps you can explain to listeners and to Zia what's behind that question. Yeah, the impulse for that question was the deep feeling I have that foresight has actually failed on a number of different counts. And I'm very reluctant to call myself a futurist because of that. I think it's so foresight and strategic foresight or future studies, whatever you like to call it, is so badly needed by the world at the moment in so many different ways and at so many different levels. The things that have put people off, I think, were a focus, unnecessarily so, on fairly complicated or arcane methods and language. And uh, even with the classic, uh, you know, two-by-two scenario stuff from from Shell, the feeling in a lot of cases that it's not particularly pertinent. Now, what, what I am concerned about is not so much thinking about what the future could be, because quite honestly, it's, it's totally unknown, isn't it? What I, I think one of the things I share with Zia is a much greater concern for understanding the present. Uh, I know his um, extended present concept is, is very close to my own notion of the expanded now when we're trying to really understand at a very deep level the kinds of patterns that exist in society and that could converge or accelerate in ways that could create a world we actually do not want, a future we do not want. Mm. I think the question was also stimulated by the fact that now, more than at any other time, we have the opportunity to, with hindsight, take note of the mistakes we've made in the past and actually design our way forward if we have a mind to. So that's, that's where the question came from originally, Pete. Yeah, this question has been bothering me as well for a very long time. Uh, in fact, when I was the editor of Futures, one of the things I noted was that everybody was talking about you know, various methods and predicting and forecasting and all that, but the results 
were not really uh, all that good. I wouldn't agree with Richard that it, that foresighted future studies, studies have completely failed, but I would say that they have not generated the kind of results that we really wanted. And of course, I agree with the point about the language. The language uh, has been too mystified and has, uh, that needs to be demystified so that it becomes more open and inclusive <clears throat> and brings in uh, you know, uh, other people who, who may not be familiar with our uh, history, methods, and, 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 and background. So one of the things that I concluded uh, just before I was uh, leaving the editorship of, of Futures was that there, there were two problems rather than just a single problem. One was that the now, as Richard said, says, was becoming more and more complex and people were not paying attention to that. And second, that future study itself was very much in a linear mode and not taking account of the complexity. Uh, to deal with a complex world, a world that is becoming more and more complex, more and more chaotic, more and more contradictory, you need you need a more complex approach, and that's what was missing. And this is, in fact, why we why I came up with the idea of post-normal times was to to point out that the world is more complex, uh, it's more chaotic, there are more contradictions out there, and this is the, the starting point. That's where we start. So the now has become very complex, and to my mind, much of future studies is still trapped in kind of extrapolation of, of the now. Uh, in fact, even if you do four by four, uh, as most people do four by four scenarios, they are essentially a, a extrapolation of the trends. They, 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 you know, they don't really come up with, 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 with startingly new ideas or new notions or new explorations. Um, so I think the, 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 what we need to do is to both look at the now in a, from a different perspective, uh, from a more inclusive and diverse perspectives, uh, from a different ontology, if you like, and then actually appreciate the fact that the future itself is a much more complex entity than it was, say, you know, for 30, 40 years ago when future studies methods were first developed. Yeah, it's, um, it's a puzzle to me, Zia, that the field of foresight hasn't yet caught up with the tools that really are needed to, to see and understand uh, in terms of what we're doing at the Center for the Future is very much looking at how AI-enabled horizon scanning can help us, for example, uh, or video gaming immersive uh, design environments and things like that, without which it's very difficult to really get a comprehensive understanding of what is happening, uh, especially as so many of the narratives we're used to are breaking down. Absolutely. Uh, I would say that we will never have a comprehensive understanding, but we ought to have a much better understanding than, than, we, than, than we have in the moment. Now, a couple of things are, are, are happening. Is One is that the, the notion of cyclic time is basically broken. Sorry, the notion of linear time is basically broken. So that we just simply extrapolating the present, which itself is changing to the future, doesn't always uh, give us the kind of results we, we want. So the extended present, as we defined it, is not really a future at all. It's simply an extension of the present onto the future. And in some cases, it works. We cannot abandon it totally. For example, in the case of epidemiology, as we see in the COVID-19, the epidemiologists are pretty good at, at, at telling us, you know, how, how a, a virus will spread, what we, what, we, what we need to do about it. So in the short term, extended present 
uh, preparations do work. But in the long term, we need to realize that the future is not linear anymore. Mm. Uh, it's not simply a, a time moving in a linear pattern. Futures become cyclic as well. And both the linear and the cyclic futures actually merge together. So the future often folds onto the present. It's not just that the present is influencing the future, but the future itself is also influencing the present. So there is this dynamic between between the present and the future that 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 we need to acknowledge acknowledge and appreciate. And without doing that, most of our work will be just based on linear ex- uh, extrapolations, and therefore it, it won't be as solid, as thorough, or if you like, as comprehensive as as it should be. Exactly. And another thing that I think we share is this notion of pluralism, the need to look through different lenses and and pluriversal concepts. Certainly, um, when we do our research, we try to make sure that we get any number of different perspectives so that we don't just think in terms of design from a Western point of view, which, again, is a a huge trap that that you're very aware of there. Yeah, but I, you see, the, 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 this is the thing about a uh, lot uh, of people uh, have asked me, for example, you know, uh, uh, your notion of postmodern times, when does it end and what does it say about endings as, as such? And I think one of the uh, reasons uh, why complexity has uh, uh, increased is that certain uh, ideas and notions are actually coming to an end. Say, I think it is the beginning uh, of the end of Western civilization. In other words, the dominant modes of thinking and doing and being, you know, the dominant paradigms of disciplines, they're all falling apart. They're just not, they're just not solid enough, for example, to actually uh, use them to navigate over, you know, uh, into a kind of viable future. Capitalism is breaking down. Uh, the idea of efficiency, for example, does not work. I mean, you know, the given paradox suggests that the more efficient you try to make it make a system, in fact, less efficient it, it, it actually becomes. Uh, the idea of perpetual one-dimensional progress does not hold. And the whole notion of growth, uh, on which a lot of our economic systems are based, just does not work anymore. How much growth can you have? It has been calculated that if you continue in the, in the present tra- trajectory, uh, we will need the resources of several planets mm. to actually continue growing in you know two, three, four percent, even zero percent growth will require uh, resources of you know more than one planet. So that we do need to move towards degrowth. And that's a very complex notion and it's very difficult to persuade people that this time has now come. It's the end of perpetual growth. We we do need to move to a more homostatic growth, a, a more much more a balanced idea of or in environment, human activities, and so on and so forth. Yes, this notion of balance, of course, is a difficult concept for most uh, orthodox economists to get. And that's a real problem, of course, because we pay so much attention to things like profits and GDP, yeah. when really, I mean, these are measures from another era. They don't really make sense in today's environment, do they? I mean, can I jump in just with a thing? Because I would take your criticism of, sorry, not criticism, but but your comment that the present can't be understood and that the old models and the old theories of the world are no, are no longer working. Well, and you mentioned economics, and there's a field that pretty much I don't think knows 
was anything at all at the moment because they're basically just torn up the economics books they were using 20 years ago and they're just simply trying to do anything to try and keep the economies moving. My question for each of you is economics is a mainstream, if I can call it a discipline, that while we may not respect it, it is still played it still has a tension with the minds of decision makers. Futures and foresight has never had the attention of the decision makers. How do we get people to pay attention to futures and foresight when we're trying to talk a language which they themselves don't want to hear? Yes. I mean, it's a good question, Peter, and I don't actually don't think it's possible. And I don't think it's possible in the current era. I think the next decade is a decade of disruption in so many different ways. I mean, I think we're going to have more pandemics. I'm certain we'll have more pandemics. The various types of disruption that we're facing, technological, uh, social, political, economic, they're all changing and converging. The, the, the thing that disturbs me more than anything is that these, the, all these factors for disruption are converging into a perfect storm. And over the next decade, we're going to feel the impact of that perfect storm. And in that kind of environment, which is in itself um, a period in a, a more broader transition between industrial society and, and something different, whatever that difference is going to be, I think now is not a time to try and get the that small, fairly insignificant field accepted or, or, or listened to, because I don't think people will. People are more and more concerned with how they can survive, and their, their, their thinking is not tuned in to uh, even long-term planning. But isn't the point that we need to focus on is the fact that survival itself is threatened. So to point out to people, for example, that if, if climate change continues the way it is continuing at the moment, it's, it's threatening uh, the very abode of, of our terrestrial journey, you know, the planet Earth. I mean, if we, with all the kind of flooding and the hurricanes and the temperature rises and the rises in, rise in sea level, it, these, are, these are life and death issues. So by pointing that out, maybe we can convince them that they need to focus on that rather than simply let disruptions continue. Now, my, my problem with disruptions is that, that's, that, yes, I totally agree with this, that we're going to have lots and lots of disruptions in the coming decade. There's no question about that. But the point is that some of these disruptions will be uh, of existential nature, right? And that's where we need to focus uh, our attention on. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, in... In a world where people had open minds and, and could listen to those kinds of arguments, I would agree. The, one of the problems with the futures field has been the emphasis on dystopian futures, I have yes. no doubt. Yes. The, because the, the, where, where you lack hope, where you lack optimism, and that's occurring a lot in the younger generation at the moment, as we can see with, with the levels of loneliness and anxiety and depression and, and then suicide, going through the roof, we, we need, and it's, it comes back to that issue of language as well, yeah. but we need yeah. to inject hope yeah. without, without you know, the, all the, the trappings of unfeasibility, yeah. not doable, all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, uh, I, I, again, I, I agree with Richard. I think too much uh, 
emphasis on dystopias and not enough emphasis on hope. Uh, future studies has to be focused on hope in, to a very large extent. I, I read recently Richard uh, Slaughter's paper, uh, Farewell to Alternative Future. Uh, I'm not sure whether both of you have seen it, but uh, I'm sure uh, Peter's probably seen it. Richard, have you seen it? The Richard Slaughter's paper on Farewell to uh, Alternative Futures, just published in Futures? Yes. Yeah, where actually he is arguing that, that macro futures do not exist anymore, that, that alternative futures uh, to, to dominant scheme of things do not exist largely because what he says, what he calls systems change, you know, which is essentially climate change. And he talks about uh, what what I would I would call the post-truth society, right? Uh, the, which basically full of contradictions. In, in our post-normal times, we will just simply say contradictions. There are too many contra contradictions to, to, to deal with. Now, if you simply focus on these things, then you're paralyzed with fear. And once you're paralyzed with fear, then your mind closes, yeah. right? And then there is no hope in, in, in a sense. So the focus should not be that these things uh, are going to destroy us. The focus should be how do we navigate ourselves from the changing now to a more viable future beyond the post-normal times or beyond the current dynamics. Yes, and that links it, of course, to design, the world of design. Do you want to explain what you mean by that? Well, as, as, yeah, I tried to in the, in the opening. I mean, I think we're at a point in the uh, evolution of the human story where for the first time we have amazing tools and technologies. We have incredible hindsight of mistakes, uh, well, the, the, the mistakes we've made and the things that worked in the past. And we have all the capability we need to actually design us our way into really sustainable and viable futures. We're not doing that, however, and I think I think the the current pandemic crisis is an interesting point for us. Uh, I really think it's an a point a point of punctuation in in that story, simply because we can see how people can attend to the emergency when it when they can see that it impacts them, it impacts them now, today, uh, in terms of the basic essentials of life. But still, we haven't got around to explaining why climate change will impact people, possibly in worse ways than we're experiencing today. So I think that's another issue. I mean, I'm hearing part of, I'm certainly hearing, it's almost like if we want to give people hope and feel agency, then we have to stop talking about this thing that might happen, What even if, even if we can't imagine it. But I hear you starting to say we have to focus on what people need right now in terms of their understanding of the present predicament without necessarily moving off to the, the abstract notion of a, a further abstract and complex and black jellyfish type future that really none of us can imagine. No, I mean, you, I think you're right. I mean, abstraction, abstract thought is all very well for people like us. But if you're talking about the average person who goes to work to earn a living just to buy food, to pay the rent, to make sure his, his or her kids are educated, the, you know, the normal lives people lead, they simply don't have the bandwidth mm. to consider the kinds of abstractions that we're talking about. 
Uh, yes, but they are they are living in a very uncertain world, and maybe we need to point out to them that uncertainty is increasing, and therefore they need to essentially learn to embrace uncertainty to some extent, and and live with uncertainty. I mean, we we see that with COVID nineteen, yeah. there there is not going to be a, a world where this sort of pandemic does not exist, and as we've already both of us have mentioned that we are going to have more pandemics in the future. So it's something that we have to learn to live with, in a, in a sense. So how do we teach people to do that? That becomes a question about, about uncertainty. Uh, but going back to, uh, to abstract thought, to my way of thinking, uh, abstract thought, is, to some extent, has become more important than it was, uh, say, 20, 30 years ago, when, when, when the dominant paradigms worked. Uh, but now, uh, one of the reasons why we are in the mess we are is that dominant paradigms do not work. So there's an epistem epistemological problem, yeah. in a sense. Uh, and so what we are doing is dealing with complex problems, there are emerging future problems, in a, with epistemology, which has all, which is already broken, in a sense. So we need to create a new epistemology, which also, and this is the, this is, this is the issue, that the the futurist now does not only have to deal with futures, he or she now also has to deal with the broken epistemology and suggest what could possibly take its place. So our workload or intellectual workload has increased manifold mm. from 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. So 20, 30 years ago, you could simply ex you know, explain to me yeah, to 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 certain extent. Well, this is how the system works. This is what's going to happen. You know, we can forecast this. We can, you know, we we can we can predict this and so on and so forth. But now you can't do that, largely because the epistemological framework in which academics, professionals think is itself broken. But Zia, I mean, I'm going to challenge, and again, I don't disagree with you, but you did make a point that futures has to sound relevant to people now. Absolutely. While we have to wrestle and create a new and temporary epistemology, we have to sound like we are like them and not like aliens. You see, that this is question of who do you, uh, who are you, who are you addressing? Pitch your communication to the person or the, or the group or the community you are, you are speaking to. So the point I'm, 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 I'm making is that uh, to some extent, we do need to focus on the abstract as well while simplifying our language, in a sense. We can't totally ignore uh, the professionals, the academics, the thinkers, the philosophers, the economists, you know, the sociologists. All those people are there who, in fact, have shaped this world. Uh, but at the same time, we also have to focus on ordinary folks who, as Richard says, are only concerned with going to the office and, and, and making a living and, and putting something, uh, you know, uh, on their table. So this is, the, this, is, this is, again, I mean, we too face the complexity and contradictions of the world in our own field. And we too have to learn to live with these contradictions, right? And some of these contradictions cannot be reconciled because they are logically, you know, uh, opposite. So we need to learn how to transcend Contradictions, yeah. you know, and that's an art that 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 we haven't learned in a sense. So, so what the point I'm making that the the job of the futurist now is much more complex than it ever was because not just that we have to deal with the changing and dynamic now, the extended present, all the future that is un, uh, unfolding on the present and changing the present at the same time and changing the future at the same time, making the whole thing complex, but also with the broken world. 
which does not have uh, epistemology to, to provide viable solutions, options, potentials, etc. And that, that is also ontologically broken. So, so we are in a, in, a, in a totally different world as futurists. We are. The, and there's, there are complicating factors, of course. I mean, the, the, the single most complicating factor I can see is the role of corporate media, well, and social media, actually, in, in providing disinformation, misinformation, and really muddying the waters to such an extent that it's just adding to the confusion. Yeah, that's, that brings us to the point of ignorance. You know, uh, the, uh, uh, one of the things about broken epistemology is the broken epistemology forces you to focus on ignorance in, in a sense. And ignorance is also increasing, you know, uh, by leaps and bounds. Uh, and it's not just a question of, uh, you know, uh, fake news and uh, stuff on, 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 on social media. But a lot of the ignorance is also generated within academic fields it's, itself by using broken uh, epistemology. Yeah. So how do we create hope in ourselves, our community, and then the people we work with? Actually, I think to, to begin with, uh, we as futurists have a duty not to lose hope. Uh, we always have to be optimistic and looking for optimistic uh, uh, you know, uh, options, in, in a sense. And we need to bring in different perspectives. Uh, this, uh, you know, again, a point that Richard made earlier on. We use the term uh, polylog in, in, our, uh, in our own group, uh, in our own network. And to, and I'd be very honest to say that we have actually failed to generate generate a polylog because polylog itself is a very you know uh, it's not just a question of different voices, it's also a question of different perspectives, different ontologies, even different epistemologies. How do you create the kind of diversity that you need to deal with the complex situation? And that's a challenge we we you know we we face, and we have to find a way of dealing with this challenge. I mean, I hear you describing. Polylog diversity as both a method and a necessary capacity to build the resilience to handle the uncertainty. Absolutely, absolutely. The um, couple of appearances I made on Australian TV towards the end of last year on on popular morning shows were a real lesson for me in the kind of way the media wants to look at the present and the future. They're, they're only interested in selling the, you know, the, the things that are going to create attention and, uh, and are popular. And they, of course, add to the noise and the confusion by focusing, uh, even in the news, on dystopian yeah. issues, but, but not at a depth required to really understand the patterns of, of what is going on in our society. Uh, Zia, I'm sure you're, you're the same, but I've come to the conclusion that the, the field of, uh, of foresight, if it's going to be useful to us, must focus not just on design, but design in terms of the human family and the evolution, not, not in kind of compartments that uh, have existed in the past. And that goes to, to disciplinary compartments as well, because the whole knowledge base is so fractured that it's impossible for us to use. Yeah, in a, in a sense. So, so the question of design then becomes a, 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 a very major issue. What what are we designing? 
we have to simultaneously design a new epistemology, new, new ontologies, a new system of behavior, a new system of doing economics, you know, a new system of thinking. So the design problem itself become, becomes a mega problem. So how, how do you think, Richard, we can approach that? Mm. How do we do complex design? Yeah, I, I certainly think we have to address the, the underlying code that is making us think the way we think and do the things that we do. So in terms of design, I, I, I use that iceberg model a lot. So it's not the tip of the iceberg that bothers me, which are the, the patterns you can see. It's what's under the surface. And the deeper you go, of course, what is cohesion, the, key, the cohesive factors that really populate the civilizational model. And, and there, as you've already pointed out, in terms of the Western civilizational model, it is breaking down to such an extent that it is, it's not viable any longer. And we can see that breaking down. Zia, can I ask? It's a thing that you have said a number of times to me, but I want you to bring in the notion of while we don't have adequate epistemologies and ontologies, you have said that understanding the guidance provided by virtues as, as necessary to guide where you go. Can you explain a bit about how, how that notion might assist people? I mean, the point that Richard made is when you go down deep into the iceberg, what is it that holds us together to some extent? I think here, it's old-fashioned virtues, which I think you find in most uh, uh, most cultures, are the only thing that we can actually rely on, generosity, compassion, you know, some notion of justice, some notion of human dignity, and human rights. Uh, that the problem is that the problem with Western, the collapse of Western civilization is that that it is not something that is limited to the West. Given that Western civilization is now the global and dominant civilization, yep. the, the collapse of Western civilization actually uh, threatens us all. Yes. Right. Uh, so we can't, those of us, uh, you know, who've been critical of the Western civilization can't just sit back on our, on our laurels and say, right, you know, we, we, we said Western civilization is going down the drain. Now it is, it is happening because it's going to impact us all. Yeah. Every, every one of us, no matter where we are, what culture, civilization we actually belong to. That's, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that the shift from one civilization to another civilization is not necessarily a good thing when the emerging civilization itself may be as oppressive as the one it is replacing. So if the world becomes dominant, dominant by a Chinese civilization, we, we may end up in just a bad place as we were before. Yeah. Right. So, so that, these ideas have to be kind of analyzed and, and understood uh, as well. Uh, so, the, so the question of what we can kind of hang on to, I think there are only two or three things. One is virtues, classical virtues, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Chinese, Confucius, Confucius, Hindus, we all, all cultures more or less agree on certain virtues as genuine virtues, right? That is the only place we, we can have a common agree, agreement on. And two, uh, we have to rely on our own, own creativity. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that the younger generations systematically are more creative than the than the generation they are replacing. That's a kind of a, a arena of hope, uh, imagination, and then uh, sorry, creativity, and then 
imagination. We, we do need to allow people to have full scope of their imagination. It is only through imagination can we come up with, with, with uh, alternative futures as defined by Richard Slaughter, something that, that goes beyond systems change, something that goes beyond all the contradictions and the, and the post-truth truth world that, 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 that we have created. One of the paradoxes, of course, that we're facing is that in an ideal world, top-down top design would be what we want, and we'd get together a thousand intellectuals and and work out what kind of a future we would benefit everyone and what we wanted. But of course, it doesn't work like that. And so I think very much any kind of regenerative consciousness needs to start at the local level and start with me, the I. Yeah. So the real problem, Peter, I think, is how people thinking like that can connect with each other and build community again, rebuild community around a regenerative consciousness rather than the kind of old idea of extractionism. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too happy with the, with the I. Right. I think we have to start with us. The, the problem has been the I. Oh, that's true. I mean, that's the individualism of Western culture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we need to move on from the I and the me, right? Uh, it's the us. And no. how do we... And, 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 the, and the problem is we don't really know how to deal with us because us is limited to say my family or my community, us is never others as well. And somehow we need to transcend that boundary, that us includes all of us as a collective humanity. Yes, I think that's, I think that's a very critical point there, uh, especially as at the moment, with the, the thing that worries me immensely is this focus on more and more productivity and buying more and more stuff that we don't really want and it's only to impress people we don't really know or even like and it's causing this culture of blame to embed itself so that if if you dress differently from me or you eat different food or you worship a different god somehow you're the enemy yeah and yet we're the same species it just doesn't make sense yeah yeah that kind of embrace of the other is something that we just have not learned. Uh, and, and somehow that, I mean, that also becomes part of the job of the future is to actually teach people that diversity is important. And it, it begins by appreciating what is us, right? And how do we embrace, embrace the other? Uh, the great scientist uh, Stephen Hawking, as you know, probably felt that the downfall of the human species would be attributed to greed and stupidity. Yeah. And we're seeing both of those, of course. And dominant themes now in the, in the post-normal times, greed, 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 and, greed and stupidity. Uh, in a sense, uh, one of the things I think we have to do, and I'm becoming more and more convinced of that, is somehow persuade uh, people to slow down. Yeah. Part of the problem is accelerating change. Yeah. Uh, change for the sake of change. Innovation for the sake of innovation. And here, of course, corporations play, play a major role. They need, they need to bring out new products all the time, even if the new product is only a minor variation of the old one, and lots of people will queue up to buy it. So somehow we, 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 we need to focus on, on slowing down. Uh, we need kind of slow food, slow agriculture, yeah. you know, uh, slow science and slow innovation just to, just, to have, just to buy time. We need time. And time's, yeah, time's coming up. Becoming a major 
factor that is more or less missing from, from our lives. And if you just look at what COVID-19 did, it provided us time. Yes. Suddenly, the time stopped, even though the clocks continued to tick. Within six months, we saw the earth regenerate itself. Uh, even in my own garden, the, the, the varieties of birds and, and, and insects and all that just multiplied. In front of my eyes, I could. I would have, one of the pleasures I have is just sitting in the evening watching the diversity of of wildlife. Kind of fox foxes start coming in my garden, right? And you know, there's so many kind of pigeons now, which I hardly ever saw before, and things like that. So, so time, I think, is is a, is, a, is a missing factor as well that we need to focus on time. Agreed. And from a strategic point of view, I mean, I've lived part of my life as a consultant and strategist for organizations. There are ways of doing that that are simply structural. So if, for example, manufacturing entities were all able to agree that inbuilt obsolescence was actually a bad thing, Mm. not a good thing, then we wouldn't be buying the latest gadgets all the time because gadgets would last longer. There are things like that we could do. The other issue that is similar is how do we rapidly decarbonize the economy when the corporate mindset is uh, in terms of the big uh, energy companies, oil, coal, gas, is such that they need to compete to start off with. And they really don't know what to do with the stranded assets that are coming onto their books. Well, there are solutions to that. We could create, for example, each uh, nation could create a carbon bad bank that took on those assets, whose role it was rather like a central bank to actually take on those stranded assets and to uh, turn them into innovative projects, leaving the major companies with clean balance sheets in which they could compete in the renewable sector. But, you know, it's that kind of imagination that's lacking. We've got a crisis of imagination too at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. In, in a sense. I mean, what I would like to say, sort of, towards towards the end of this wonderful discussion, is that the, the tasks of the futurist has now multiplied many, many fold. Right. We finally we are like beginning to to see that some of our old methods just do not work. Right. We, we need to create new methods. We need to deal with the, the future as a complex space, which is not totally divorced from the present, but in fact, the future shapes the present as much as the present shapes the future. And we have to deal with broken epistemologies and broken ontologies, uh, which makes our tasks very, very difficult. In fact, it can lead to paralysis because the tasks are so complex. And that's why we need to step back, slow down a bit and think and think in a, in a hopeful a forward-looking way rather than just giving to fear. And also, just to pick up your other two points, we need to think about the collective. And we have to think collective. And we need to find the unifying aspects that that actually link us across different cultures. And you suggest the virtues, the classic virtues, as at least a, a starting point for those those linking points. Absolutely. I think that's a good summary, a brilliant summary. Thank you, Richard and Zia, for a fascinating conversation that, that, that had its moments of, oh, my God, and, my, and, and yet within that, 
we still find things to be hopeful about. So thank you very much for everything you do and thanks for joining the community at FuturePod. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.